I'm an alcoholic, and I'm powerless over any mood and mind-changing chemicals. I'm very grateful to be sober. And last of least importance, my name is Jim Kaiser. Hi, everybody. You know, back in the uh, mid-60s, if you remember that far back, of course, the earth was still a little flat. Uh, I uh, separated, I was separated from my wife, one of many separations. And my wife and my son lived in Redondo Beach, California, and I, after a geographical return to a town, four towns south, Tonington Beach, and I was going to start over. And somehow the friends closed in again, and then my sister needed to move in with me, and uh, all my booze was going, and somebody was slipping on my Valiums, which I needed because I had a very sensitive job, and I needed to be quite steady. And uh, that was because I had had this terrible back injury in an automobile accident that was my parents' fault uh, when I was young. And no one understood why these tremors came on, and I was going, I was doomed to be a palsy victim, uh, you know, any day. Uh, None of it was alcohol, of course. Uh, and it's amazing, one Sunday morning, uh, all dressed up, had on a suit and a tie. I was on my second Bloody Mary. And I realized when I used to hit in to go up to West Hollywood or so on or in L.A. where I had friends for the parties, because weekends were for parties. There wasn't any place I wanted to go. I was sick and tired of my money uh, being ripped off, the, uh, of being broke all the time, buying booze. They were drinking all my booze and, and smoking all my pot and taking all my Valium. And uh, if I would do something, and suddenly that Sunday morning on that second Bloody Mary, uh, it obviously attuned and sharpened, attuned and sharpened my mind. Uh, because I remembered when I was about eight years old standing in the dining room, not in the living room, my uncle who was a doctor talking to my father. My father said, yeah, but Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work for me. And somehow that came back into my head. My father, whether or not he was an alcoholic, is a moot point. He drank daily and he was very violent when he drank and he drank down through the years, I think, which explained why we went from a big house to a smaller house and so on. And then the temporary recoveries when we would build a new house, you know, and then boom, the problems again. And I looked in the phone book just out of curiosity, and sure enough, there was an Alcoholics Anonymous listed. I didn't know anything about it or what they did or anything, but I thought if I didn't drink, then there wouldn't be booze here for people to empty my wallet out. And so I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and this guy down in Newport Beach answered the phone, and he said, uh, can you come here? Do you want me to come there? And I'm indignant. Of course I can come there. I said, give me the address, and he did, and I went down there, and Drove around the block several times in front of this big house. I knew I had to be at the wrong address, you know, because I've been alcoholic. That's, you know, gutter stuff, Main Street, L.A., and so on. Those were winos. And what's he doing in this house? I, it's the wrong address. Finally, there wasn't any other address to match. And I parked and I went up to the door and into the vestibule. I was invited with this crystal chandelier and expensive wallpaper. And they took me on in through to the living room, which had only a grand piano. He said, let's go back to the den. He said, my wife stopped me when I tried to get the piano out the door to sell it. Uh, and suddenly I could, I, something secret happened inside that I could relate to what this guy was talking about. And I thought, he, gee, he's going to be kind of neat. And he spent the whole day with me. He took me by a halfway house and he said, Jim, do you need to live here? And again, my pride is affronted. Oh, no, I don't need to live here. And he took me that night to a big meeting on Lido Isle at the church. And as we pulled up, uh, their Cadillacs and mink coats going in. And I walked in that night and I heard two movie stars tell their story. And I laughed louder than anybody else in the room. And it was a big meeting. And, uh, boy, I knew I was in the right place. I was right where I belonged, you know. Mink coats and Cadillacs, movie stars. And, uh, of course, I took the steps that night, you know, as they read them off. And it was not difficult. And being a spender, when they sold the books, I was up first, bought the book, went home that night, read the book, uh, didn't drink, smoked only three joints, read all night long, went to work the next morning. And uh, I had arrived. This was going to be the solution. And for the next six months, I diligently went to meetings and did not drink. Of course, I had to have my valings because of the sensitive job, and pot helped me go to sleep. And then I would get my wife to come down on the weekend, you know, 
and I'd take her out and get her drunk, and she could see me sober. And at the end of six months, the money was still going out of the wallet, and no one appreciated my newfound sobriety, pardon the expression. And I had always said, I have a problem with alcohol, it was emptying my wallet. I never said I was an alcoholic. And I decided that those people were wonderful people, and they were telling the truth and everything. But my problem was a little bit different, and they wouldn't understand, so I didn't talk about it. You know where that leads. You come to Alcoholics Anonymous because you got a problem with alcohol. That's how you get here, and we're singleness of purpose insofar as that we have a desire to not drink alcohol. That's our singleness of purpose. There may be other chemicals in our lives, especially in today's world, and I'm a stressor of the singleness of purpose so we don't forget. Because if we forget, we will no longer be Alcoholics Anonymous, and we will fail. And the warnings were given to us in the beginning. And had it not been for the expression of singleness of purpose, I never would have felt qualified to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because other drugs were eventually to become a part of my life, and I'm not here to talk about drugs. I'm here to talk about being an alcoholic, okay? But whatever else you use, God bless you, you know? You got a desire, you're in my heart. Society changes, the rules of the game do not. You know, I formed a lot of weird ideas. Uh, as I said, my father who uh, drank down, I didn't know that he was drinking down. I didn't know that he was an alcoholic because he didn't uh, sleep in the gutter. Uh, my mother was insane. She didn't drink or smoke, but when he drank, she went crazy. I never put two and two together. My sister drank and she had to take me with her uh, because I was to be her protector somehow that she wouldn't have trouble. Well, she'd get drunk and I could pull her into bed if that's not trouble. And I knew she was going to be like my father. Now, I didn't want to be like my father. I hated him. I loathed him. I loathed him. The violence, I didn't like being a punching bag. My mother, I couldn't, she loved me and I knew that, but I couldn't trust her because she wasn't stable. She went crazy, you know, periodically. And I didn't put the two and two together. She only went crazy when he drank. And my sister, she was going to be just like my father. So I didn't want to be like anybody in the family. And I knew I couldn't be like these. Uh, I come from a family that has a lot of doctors in it. I couldn't be like them. You know, they uh, we have every religion there is in my family. Every religion that there is. We're the Buddhists uh, on up and down. Uh, we're, 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 uh, we're Hebrew. Uh, everything. And it's really a melting pot. And I didn't want to be like any of them. And I thought that a couple of them were very, very religious. Uh, some Seventh-day Adventists are in there in the heart of it. And I just thought, well, maybe God works for them, but, you know, he forgot about me because look at the hell that my life is, you know. And I rejected that away. And I was to be in this program for about uh, ten years, ten years, when I found, when I finally found out what happened with my relationship with God as I understand him today. Uh, as a kid, I had gone over to the wishing well when I was about eight years old. It was at the church around the corner, and I had taken off all my clothes behind the honeysuckle vine and jumped down in and was getting all the coins out and stacking them up on the edge when the police pulled up. And they allowed me to pull my pants on only and not keep the coins. And... They took me with holding on to my shirt and my shoes around to this pastor who just chewed me out. And then they took me over to my mother. I was so humiliated and so embarrassed, and I had no way to deal with that at eight years old. And for the rest of the time we lived in that house, I walked a block down the alley either way to catch the bus. I never walked by that church again out of shame and guilt. <clears throat> and that was never lifted. And consequently, that guilt was way down deep inside because in alcoholism, I forgot my childhood. I absolutely blocked it out. It took me five years before I started to remember back before I was 12 and 13 years old. Uh, I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous after many, many love affairs. After living with my first time I fell in love, I told her, I said, I'm never getting married. I'm not going to make the mistake. My sister was on her fourth marriage. Uh, my mother and father with that mess, I didn't want it. So we lived together for five years, and 
I knew that uh, my lifestyle had to be getting the things that I was supposed to have, and I was going to get them come hell or high water. And uh, I bought her a new car each year, bought for me each. When I bought one for myself, I bought her jewelry, bought her clothes, picked out our friends, picked out our vacation spots, told her what to wear, where we'd eat. The whole thing, after five years, she left the dictator, and I couldn't understand. After all, I've done for you. Uh, it was two weeks after she left, and I was really drinking heavily. And uh, somehow that heavy drinking, I must have started to identify. Now, I've been drinking heavily since I was 15 years old, but I could hold it. I never staggered. I never got arrested. Uh, like the car didn't weed when I drove. Uh, I could party from Friday night till right on through and show up Monday morning because Mr. Perfect, don't catch me late uh, at work. I was Mr. Perfect. I spent 14 years on a job that I didn't like as I showed up for the dollar bill. I was very materialistic and uh, dedicated to that pursuit. And, you know, it's uh, two weeks after I started to think of my father and thought, you know, maybe what he really had needed was a friend all along. And I knew he was down in Long Beach. I paid for the divorce uh, for my mother to get a divorce one time when he hit her, gave her a bloody nose. And I chased him down Pico Boulevard in L.A. with a uh, with an axe. I was working out in the yard cutting a tree down, so I found dual use for it instantly. Uh, I never saw him again. And so here is my head, and I wondered why, and this escalated drinking. And I got a call from my grandmother asked me why I wasn't at his funeral that day. And something about it, I really came unglued. And, boy, I went on a bender. I told him I had to have some time off. And a friend of mine said, uh, Jim, you really need some help with these things in your life. What was Donna leaving you and your father dying and everything. And you ought to get some help. And said, I know this good psychiatrist at the Hacker Clinic in Beverly Hills. And right away, you know, Beverly Hills, yes. Hacker Clinic, everybody needs a shrink. And I thought that was the perfect solution. So I went there. And I went twice a week and paid 50 bucks an hour so I'd have somebody to lie to. You know, I could have stood in the street corner of the paper boy for two bits and bought a paper and run this crap by him. It would have been no problem. I was totally unteachable insofar as because I didn't see alcohol as a problem in my life because I wasn't like other people. I, w I didn't drink like they did. You know, my friends, I could, they disgusted me. They threw up on cars. You know, they got sick. They passed out. Uh, they went to bed at night, you know. I wanted to go. I wanted to go because life was to be lived. I'd get bored at parties. I remember going, I went to some pretty swanky parties and, uh, I remember getting bored, you know, 11 or 12 at night. It was dead. I, you know, a couple hundred people. I knew them all well. I'd go out and get in my car and take off for Vegas and I'd ride back, you know, uh, I'd floor the accelerator over that old two lane road to Vegas. Uh, no fear of anything. Uh, Drinking, I would swim way out where I knew there were sharks in the water. Uh, I, it's, it's, uh, as soon as I soloed and I could get my hands on the plane, I, I flew off to a party down in Costa Mesa, you know, chased down the runway. Needless to say, I never got my license. Uh, I had no fear. I had no fear. Alcohol really made me whole. It put me together. But you know, after, that little bout with AA for six months and being different, I knew that the problem was people. It was your fault. And I was a great blamer, didn't know this. I blamed my family. Then I, you know, <laughs> then I blamed the job. Then I blamed the marriage. And then pretty soon it was everybody's fault. You know, it just keeps growing. Blame has no boundaries. And I thought if I can go back to where my wife and I had come down to Miami and had a couple of uh, bars and a rest until we opened, drank it up in a year and went back to California. Uh, supposed to be open for customers, you know. <laughs> we were the best. I married somebody that drank just as I did. And I thought if I could just get away where I don't know anyone, then people can't use me. So I came back to Miami and I had to drink a little bit and the money was uh, pretty much gone. And I had to work. I didn't know what to do. And, of course, employment opportunities back in the 60s in Miami weren't uh, very vast. And I thought, well, let's see. I owned a restaurant, a couple of bars. I guess I could be a waiter. And I went to work. And I had to work just four hours. And uh, inside of 18 months, it found me that I'd get up at 9 o'clock in the morning. There was a bottle next to the bed. 
I shook so violently that I couldn't get out of the bed. My legs wouldn't hold me until I would get some booze down. The booze by this point was 80% peppermint schnapps because if I smelled alcohol, uh, I would get sick. But the peppermint schnapps didn't have that uh, bourbon or whiskey odor. And I would get over to the sink to rinse my face off. I didn't dare risk the razor yet. I'd start and get the first four Valiums down in my system. And after a couple of glasses full of peppermint schnapps, I'd take off my bag, and you could have seen me downtown Miami. I headed for one of the Cuban restaurants where I could get an egg sandwich and a carton of milk with a straw because I couldn't use silverware. The food wouldn't stay on. Uh... I couldn't pick up a glass of liquid because I shook so violently, so the straw in the mouth was ideal. And I'd go around to the five liquor stores for a seven-day supply of three bottles a day. And with that, <laughs> boy, we're crazy, you know. And I'd say, well, let's see, I'm going to go away for a couple of days this week. I guess I'd better have three bottles because <laughs> you couldn't buy peppermint snaps at all the liquor stores. But, you know, I, I didn't want them to know how much I drank. You know, I should have been concerned, never mind their concern, but I didn't know to be concerned for me. I didn't know how to feel anything caring for me because I'd never cared for me. I had hidden from me. And you taught me all that. And at the end of 18 months, and my only recourse was another attempt, and this time I couldn't miss at suicide. I've been strapped down on the finest flight decks, frothing in the mouth, screaming at the rescuers. Uh, I mean, my attempts were not dramatic. They were dead serious. I hid myself up in the Hollywood Hills when my car couldn't be seen and jammed the hose in one night. I know I woke up with pull motor squads and the window smashed out on my car and I'm on the ground, oxygen being pumped in, uh, in comas for days in hospitals. Uh, I just always wanted to die because this world wasn't fair. It was God's bad joke on humanity if there was a God. And that night, after three days of drinking, in fact, I couldn't make it home from the liquor store that afternoon. They had to get a cab to get me out of the liquor store. Uh, I couldn't walk three blocks. And I had enough courage now. I had a gun to blow my brains out. <clears throat> But in the bungling course, somebody else <coughs> was to die. And I was locked up in the jail, and they slammed those steel doors. And a sigh of relief came, and I was at peace for the first time in my life. I knew that it was over. I was removed from the world that I didn't want to live in, that I couldn't live in that you people couldn't get at me. It was over and it was done. And thank God it's over. Thank God it's over. And that's how I prayed. God would pop out when I didn't believe in him. I had gorgeous arguments against God. And yet, why? How can you defend somebody that doesn't exist or something that doesn't exist? They made no uncertain terms that I would never leave the state prison, that was just fine with me. And I met a couple of guys in the county jail that told me about, they said to me, uh, what kind of work are you going to do when you get to the prison? And I work, you know, I fill out an employment application. What is this? You know, I was confused. I didn't know anything about jails or prisons. And they started telling me all the things were there, and they said there was a nursery there. And boy, oh boy, my mind clicked just like that. I had an aunt who was a horticulturist for the city of Los Angeles, and and I said, where they've got plants, they've got poison. And I remembered a lot of the things that she said, and I started right off, you know. I knew how to con. And that's where I was going to work, because I'd get my hands on poison, and then I could finally die. That's all I ever thought about was, fine. finally, I can die. So I sat in that <clears throat> prison, and I played all the games, and I finally got the interview, and I was assigned to work out at the nursery. And during this time, uh, I'd been passing in the chow hall. They had a sign that says AA meetings on Saturday. I never could figure out why they had AA in prison, you know. Uh, it didn't make sense uh, to me. It just not, none of it registered to me, you know. Uh, brilliant mind with no IQ. Uh, <laughs> If there was a disadvantage, I always placed myself in it, you know, like somebody would do with fine clothing. You know, I just got dressed in the disadvantage every time. I uh, used to walk out with squad lines 
out to the nursery. And, of course, it took me no time to find out how to break into where they kept the insecticides and the poisons. And uh, they weighed them every day, so you could only get like a spoon at a time, and I'd put it in a jar and bury it down in the ground of the greenhouse. And I figured that it would take me quite a little while to get enough poison together, because this time I couldn't make a mistake. And uh, I discovered that I was working over the biggest still that they had ever had in the state prison. <laughs> it was under the greenhouse. <laughs> and the pipes ran on over to the steam plant, and so all the venting came out the steam plant, so they never could find it. And the copper tubes ran inside the two-by-four walls. It was an ingenious process. And I found out that they, and by the way, I would get the smell, and I thought, what's that smell? You know, what's that smell over in the next greenhouse that was attached to it? And it depended, you know, the buck of the week, so to speak. You know, if there were pineapples on the menu, we had pineapple buck. Uh, and then when they got all the uh, 200 pounds of uh, uh, seed for the lawns, they got rye seed. Well, suddenly the seeds were all gone, you know, and there was rye. Uh, whatever was available, you know, but there was always booze. <laughs> and I used to look at that door over there and I think, oh, my God, I, I want to go in there so bad. I want to join him for a drink so badly, so badly. And I could smell it and I knew and I could hear him laugh. And I knew that if I took a drink, what would happen? That there was more hell waiting for me than the hell I'd lived in. You know, if I thought just having cockroaches crawl over me and weevils in the food and uh, and urine splattered on the bottom of my bed was bad and watching people murdered and watching people beat. It's amazing how many people fall down staircases in the state prison. It has the highest murder rate in the state. Incomprehensible demoralization. I tell you, sometimes I wonder, can we hold a candle to that state prison? It was then called a rock in those days. And I thought, this guy that walked the line with me, uh, and the next squad, who joked all the time, I kind of kept my space from him. I never wanted to get too close in the line. He was a little over six foot, weighed about 230 pounds. His name was Ralph, and he was crazy. He laughed all the time and joked. He scared me, you know. Finally, one day I thought, I've got to, maybe I ought to go to that, kill a little time. I should go to that alcoholics and I was to try to find out about it. And I went up to this lieutenant, and I said, why is it it says AA and I never see anybody? He said, well, where the sign is, there's a staircase, stupid. You take it upstairs. And so I went one Saturday morning and went up and I sat way in the back of the auditorium like I'm going to be hidden, you know. And who chairs the meeting but this lunatic that walked in the squad next to me. You know, he gets up and it was just like any meeting I'd been to for those six months out in, in, in Newport area. And I couldn't put that together. How he could be up there and this meeting could be just like a free world AA meeting and I was very confused by it. it. Took me a little longer and I, one day as the squad line stopped coming back in, I, and he had made one of his daily jokes out loud. You know, somebody would say, what kind of time you got? Uh, what, you got the time, Ralph? And he said, yeah, I got 20 years. What kind of time you got? You know, and I mean, you know, just stupid stuff that he would say. And I looked over at him and I said, Ralph, could you tell me, how can you be so happy in here when we live in this garbage pail? And he said, hell, Jim, this is the only place I got to live. How do you want me to be? You know, it was the first thing that logged into this sick mind that made any sense to me. And I said, my God, look at him and look at me. I'm living in total, absolute Misery, well, a guy who's been here for 14 years uh, is living with more joy than I've ever known in my whole life. I couldn't figure it out. And I said, do you think I could ever learn to be happy? And he did something <clears throat> I couldn't stand. He, he touched me, put his hand on my shoulder. And I didn't dare push it away. He's too friggin' big, you know. And he said, yeah, I'll help you. And that night he did what only Alcoholics Anonymous members can do for another alcoholic. And he did it well. He had never been to a free world meeting. He had read the book. And that man, to me, knew more about AA than most old timers that I've met. He knew his work down to perfection. He sat me on a darkened staircase 
Thank God. Because my face went every color. And he told me a horror story about himself that I didn't know if I was going to throw up or be sick or what. I had never heard such a horror story in my life. Who had obviously been touched by God. You see, that's what we do. I was no longer the worst person on the earth. He was. He lifted the burden, and I didn't know it right away, but he started the process of a reprieve that only takes place when one alcoholic shares with another. I started having perspective on guilt, and I started having a lot of fear of Ralph, Uh, because, boy, he was a taskmaster. Called me stupid. Told me I had to sit in the front row. That's where stupid people sit. That's why I'm not talking to you. Uh, <laughs> he said, you're going to be hard to teach. And, and I stuttered badly and everybody called me shaking. Nobody ever called me by my name. God, Shay. He said, can you, you can't talk. He said, can you write? And I said, I don't think so. I couldn't hold a pencil on, you know, to write anything. And he said, can you type? And I said, you know, I might be able to type. Uh, he plopped me out to the AA office that very first day, and he sat me down. And he said, you're going to write letters. And he started me <coughs> writing letters. We got a lot of letters, you know, through the office there from uh, other prisons and inmates and uh, the free world. And he started me writing letters. And I want to tell you that that became my source of communication because since I couldn't speak, it took me five minutes to get a sentence out. And I had to be careful what I got out anyway because Ralph would be nearby. And he started me with the first step instantly. There was no delay. I didn't get uh, get accustomed. And in a few months, we'll start this. It's none of that. I mean, this was hardline AA that I got. It's what I needed. It's the, it's the way it had to happen for me. Any other way, I, I don't think that I would be here right now. Sonny said it so well. I needed every day of my nine and a half years in that garbage pail. It was, it was an experience because by the end of that first year, I had at least 200 letters a month were going out to people all over, not only the United States, but the world. The miracle was that I never wrote a letter without getting an answer. God, you people are dependable. These are institutional people. And this convention is about sharing the gift. I want to tell you that the sharing of the gift that I have received is beyond all that I can describe in this short bit of time. So, of course, I'm going to encourage you to get out and find out what I'm talking about if you're not doing it already. (laughs) But the gift was beautifully shared with me and... uh, and the sponsorship of Ralph and the hard line and the love that he gave me made me pray when I knew there was no God. And after a year and a half of hitting my knees and asking for help, uh, the stuttering was starting to dissipate a little bit. And I knew of a problem that I wanted to be involved with. Uh, but I was behind electric fences. My mother was quite sick out in California and going to have surgery. And it was to be serious, something that she could die without. And I used to open up the greenhouses. And <clears throat> this morning, uh, white light experience, whatever Bill describes it best from the hospital bed. That morning, I'd had, I'd had a letter uh, the day before about her condition and they didn't know what the answer would be. Uh, it was going to be expensive and my sister had said, we just can't afford it. And <clears throat> I'd have given them my wallet freely had I been on the outside at that and in that condition that I was in. 
And I was angry at God because I'd prayed. And I wasn't even sure he was listening. And I remember that morning, I was, I was so emotional and so tight, I started screaming at him. And, uh, which I was to learn later is acceptable. Uh, pray as you are, you know, don't alter your condition and be phony with the God of your understanding. And I was raging at God. Whom I wasn't sure was there listening either. And I know that I fell to my knees. And I started to cry. And the greenhouse, this was just before daylight, was filled with light. It was like light coming through, blasting through a glass door at the far end of the greenhouse. Uh, I don't think it was the sun. And a peace came over me. And I had that vast experience. Thank you. I had that vast experience. All your emotions, mental condition are suddenly rearranged. And in that moment, I knew the God of all the preachers. A peace came over me. A smile came on my face. I don't know what it was, excepting that I knew there was a God. And I couldn't get the friggin' smile off my face. I had never smiled in prison. I had never smiled. I never laughed. There wasn't anything to laugh about. For three days, that smile wouldn't come off, and I would swear that there was a hand on my arm. I could never see it. I could look like this, and it'd be gone, but... From the side of my eye, there was a hand on my arm for three days. And I thought, they're going to lock me up. You know, they think I'm loaded or something. You know, they know there's booze out here. You know, I couldn't stop the smile. And Ralph seemed to understand what I talked about. But at the end of three days, a letter came and told me that everything was all right. My spiritual experience took place at the same time that my mother had surgery. (laughs) Somebody listens. Pray. I recommend it. (laughs) Very strongly. You know, they told me I was going to be transferred out of that prison and I got scared because I was supposed to be there forever, you know. I'd thrown away the poison because I didn't have to die, because I'd found the joy. Uh, I'd been hitting those meetings every Sunday for the outside sponsors that came in, and I'd asked this one woman finally to be my outside sponsor via mail that came in. She was there every Sunday, regular. First six months or so, I thought she was nuts, you know, because no sane person would spend their Sundays in prison. And then she used to come in in these big flower dresses, skinny little thing. Uh, from Gainesville, I said, I'm a grateful alcoholic, you know, and get up there and smiling, and uh, and God loves you, you know, and I thought, boy, this fruitcake, you know, she won't be back next week, they'll lock her up, you know, they'll get the net out, <laughs> and I, you know, I never expected her to show up the next week, and she was always there, she was always there. By the end of a year, whatever it was that woman had, I wanted, I wanted that I wanted that joy, I wanted that love, and I didn't know how it was to come, and I didn't know how a smile was ever going to come on my face in that garbage pail, but they told me I was going to be transferred to another institution. And I was scared to death, you know, and I told Ralph about this, that I was panicked because this is the only place I'd ever learned to live and to live at peace and to live with joy, and that these were my AA friends, and they were my family, and that was at the Hope Group at State Prison. And, but he said, Jim, he said, don't worry about it. He said, because you don't go alone anymore. He said, God's going to go with you. I went down to a place, Avon Park, and I, uh, I'd taken all these state courses, and I was now, the state told me I was a horticulturist now. 
I started writing magazine articles and uh, for Horticulture Magazine. Uh, they trenched me down and the sergeant put me in charge of this big 10-acre nursery and I started teaching uh, horticulture there at classes for the inmates. Then the town paper wanted me to write a news column, so I wrote a weekly column. And after the a year, it was a guide to horticulture in the central Florida. So the target that was to be the source of my death became a source of rebirth again, another area. Uh, nothing, I never knew that I could write anything, you know. Uh, well, I could on a restroom wall or something, you know, but nothing sophisticated. <laughs> And then they came and they told me the terrible news. My sister had come back down to Florida and she lived in Hope Sound. They told me the terrible news that I was the second person in the state of Florida that was going to be taking a furlough. And there was no way you were getting me outside that prison. No way in hell you were going to get me outside that prison. I didn't belong out here. I wasn't good enough to be out here. I didn't know that that's what I was crying inside. I was only refusing. I don't belong out there. It was in way down deep, buried under layers of stuff. For all the recovery, that part had not recovered. And I said, I can't go. I can't go. I can't go. Finally, the sergeant, who was kind of smiling, drank too much, he said, Jim, he said, if you don't go over and sign up and take that for he said, I'm having you locked up in the hold. And it was just cut and dried, you know. So I was forced to go, and I went down and... uh I was picked up by two friends, my sisters, and she was in Indian Town. And she said, well, Jim, she said, by the time the next time, what do you think if, uh, if I use a little bit of money that's left and get a mobile home and uh, I'll have it located in Hope Sound? And, and I said, uh, that'd be great. And so uh, she drove me down and showed me the thing and everything. And I was taken back to the prison then after that furlough. And... Uh, it was okay. I was protected, and I didn't go any place. I just stayed inside the mobile home with her, except for the ride down there. And and I met this couple that had been up to visit me too at the prison, so that was okay. But I was panicked because I I was going to have to go to Hope Sound again, you know, and and I I, I was scared. And I knew that there was we had the center group, <coughs> the World Directory, and I wrote a letter out to this uh, uh, man that was listed in Hope Sound, and he. Uh, here it was coming up on the furlough now that I was going to have to go to Hope Sound. And, you know, I knew I had to go because otherwise the Sarge was going to make trouble for me. And I thought, I can't go down and take the risk of, of another weekend without being in touch with somebody in the program. Because uh, I didn't think I'd make it. It, it, was, it was hard for me emotionally. I, was, I felt totally unacceptable to be out. And the letter didn't come back, and it didn't come back, and here it was Thursday, and I was supposed to leave, and uh, I was to catch the train, and uh, a letter came from this guy in Massachusetts, and it said, uh, gee, I'm only there during the season. It was the man I'd written the letter to, and, and here at the last minute, so I fired a letter off to the man and to the woman. He gave me two names, and I fired a letter off saying, I'm arriving Friday night, please, can someone meet me? And I gave him the address of where my sister was going to be. I just had the address. I didn't know where it was exactly. And I just went cold, and my sister picked me up at the train uh, that Friday, and she said, gee, who's this guy, Norm, uh, that came over last night? And uh, I said, oh, that's the man I sent a letter to. I'm, gonna, uh, I, I'm glad he came over. He said, I, I, I think he's going to take me to an AA meeting. And uh, she said, oh, boy, it's so strange. You know, he lives right behind us. <laughs> Their back doors opened on each other. Strange location. But then I made the mistake, you know, again, I prayed. Uh, and I want to tell you, for the next four and a half years, I became the token convict weekend member of the Hope Sound group. Uh, that's how I judge myself. They never use terms like that. But they love me. The next time I came down, they asked me if I would be willing to help Saturday with the carnival uh, that they had in the town, you know. And uh, we went to meet them Friday night and Saturday night and then Sunday morning to the Crow's Nest up in Jensen Beach. It was great, but I was going to help with the carnival Saturday. And, and boy, some of them were so dumb. You know, guess who went around to all the rides and concessions collecting the money? 
I said, good God, if the, if the city fathers find out you've got this convict running around collecting all these funds, you know, they're, they're going to run you all out of town. <laughs> they did some pretty strange things, but the strangest thing that they did was the way they loved me and they, the way they accepted me unconditionally. And I, and that's something I didn't understand, you know. They were my teachers. And I had, you know, I'd gone to Hebrew services and I'd spent a lot of time in the prison library reading about world religions and I practiced a little astrology and I did a few chants, uh, Buddhist, uh, that, uh, the Buddhist religion uses and I'd done a lot of things and, uh, of course, it was best for me at Hebrew services because a direct line to God, just like AA has, you know. And I remember I tried to go to a Baptist uh, service one time thinking maybe prayers with others would help. And I walked in. The first thing, a lay preacher got up and he said, if you want to get to God, you got to go through Jesus. And I didn't know he had a secretary, you know. So I walked out instantly. I said, I've already got a direct line. Uh, <laughs> but later on in, uh, in sobriety, I was to be asked to, these girls asked me if I would like to go to a a uh, special event that on a Monday night, a prayer service that a lot of alcoholics went to, and I said yes because I thought these two women just, you know, were divine. They came down from up above. They weren't born here. Uh, they just had that quality of sobriety. And uh, Mitzi had given me a great big Bible. Mitzi, who lived here in Jupiter, uh, I said... Yes, and the reason I had said yes is that week when I'd, I'd been transferred again, I was down in Lantana at a center down there as a permanent party, and I felt kind of empty that week, and I'd walked out to the woods, and for the first time, this emptiness came over me that God wasn't there, and that's where I prayed and meditated every morning, you know, and it was kind of empty, and the next day I went, it was kind of an emptiness, and I was kind of scared. And I walked back up to my room, and I cracked the book, and I believe in the old biblical style that I cracked the book and my answer will be there. And I opened up the 12 and uh, 12 and it was the 11th step. And I read the catch will continue, continue to uh, improve. And I thought, I've never tried to improve. I said, hell, for the last eight and a half years, I've been writing AA prayers verbatim, you know, word for word, over and over and over and over. I'd worn them out. And I didn't know what to do accepting what you taught me, so I hit my knees and said, God, I don't know what to do. And so it was that weekend they asked me to chair the meeting that Mitzi and Pat told me about the prayer meeting. I looked at Pat and I said, gee, I've been expecting you. Uh, because I did. I'd prayed. And I expect. And they took me to that prayer meeting and boy, it was glorious. And I saw a lot of people that I knew and I didn't know that they went to prayer meetings like that and there were soft songs and afterwards they said they lay on Hands in the chaplain has special prayers if you have a special prayer you need. And so we're going out the door and they said, you want to go to the chapel, Jim? And I said, oh, no, you've driven all the way down here to take me to this wonderful evening and everything. And it's late and you need to get on. And Pat says, only your pride will keep you out. And I said, yes, I've got a prayer. I had a, <clears throat> a fear that was very great. I never wanted to go back in that prison again. And it was prayed away that night, and I didn't know that the prayer was answered instantly. And I was asked to go back to the state prison and speak at their anniversary. And some months later, and I accepted, and I went back, not thinking about the prayer. I had this glorious day. I rode up there with two friends from West Palm, and we're on the way back. It was at night, and suddenly I let out a yelp. Because once again, I realized the prayer had been answered. The fear had been removed. They had treated me like a human being, all the hacks. They were friendly. They were, you know, it, it, I had no fear. No fear at all. I had a call uh, down to the office from the center one day, and and they, uh, I had gone on this special program, uh, 13 men in the state, we were allowed to uh, participate. Uh, with educational program, uh, it was a study release program, sort of experimental. And I was allowed to go out to the college and take, uh, courses, and I was taking, uh, further courses in, uh, getting my bachelor's degree and taking courses in landscape technology and etymology and such. And, uh, 
Anyway, I had met a couple of deputies that went out there because the academy was there, and we had talked to the grounds, and I got to see them. I'd see them at meetings when I went to meetings and things. We became friends, and I became like a sponsor to one of them, and, uh, which I thought was a little backwards, but anyway, it's... Uh, he was a big loving guy and he had, uh, he had been ordered, I found out later, ordered to, uh, come over and, uh, ask me to be his sponsor. And somehow, uh, they called me down to the office and they said you had a phone call, uh, uh, a little while ago and we talked to them and you're, and the man's gonna call back again. It's the sheriff of Broward County. And whatever he asks you, we advise that you say yes. This is weird. They didn't say anything further. Sure enough, four o'clock they called me down to the office and I went to the phone and, uh, ah, this is, this is Ed. I'm sheriff here. You know, very abrupt me. Uh, I'd like to have you come down, uh, Broward County and start some alcohol cells in my jail. Would you do that? Yes. <laughs> now I spent my life saying no when I meant yes, and yes when I meant no. You know, because my pride wouldn't allow me to accept anything that anybody else wanted to do. But fortunately, I said yes. And I thought, well, boy, this is going to be complicated. You know, I'm supposed to be here for the rest of my life. The judge told me, and you know, uh, well, the next morning they. Beat me out at about 7.30 in the morning. He said, you better get your stuff down here. The sheriff's car is here, you know. My God, it's overnight. They hauled me off. And, you know, they always let you travel in those wonderful clothes, all whites, you know. Uh, just stand out like a sore thumb. They took me down behind the courthouse. There was a work release facility, and it was an old apartment building converted. And so took me in there, and I was to find out that it was through uh, the conversations of these deputies, uh, and a woman who used to come up and bring picnic lunches there on Sunday to me and uh, that they had gotten together and told the sheriff about me. And so he and two of his henchmen came over to visit uh, and everybody made a flurry and getting the desks and in my white clothes. I went way to the back of the courtyard and I stood there and uh, wanted to be out of the way, you know. And he walked in through the gate and he didn't pay any attention to the officers. He walked straight ahead and he picked me up and gave me a hug. And he told me he was a recovered alcoholic. He said, do you need anything? And I said, no. He said, well, you got to need something. He said, if you need any clothes or anything, it'll be taken care of. And he said, I'll see you get some money each week. And he said, you go down there and tell him that. I said, you're to pick out an apartment in here. And uh, I'm like, you know. And uh, then he made a new automobile at my disposal and told me to go over and pick out two cells at the jail, jail that I wanted to use. I'm like, I'm just, you know, I'm stunned. I just don't know which way to go. Uh, I soon found out. I went over and I picked out and I started the first alcohol cells in Broward County. And uh, they've changed a lot through the years and they've grown and they're quite an operation now. But <clears throat> I was turned down twice on getting a parole in those little chapel I went to every day uh, that was nearby and uh, I could come and go as I chose and I became a counselor some of the men there's this little counselor who would drop out from a Catholic uh, uh, seminary uh, he was going to be a priest and he I guess he flunked uh, <laughs> Came down and worked at the center and he had these big soft eyes and he spoke kind of like Roger and Bill here at the convention, very soft and gentle with people and loving, you know. And I always thought he was kind of magical the way he worked with people and he, he, uh, said to me, Jim, he said, would you like to go to a retreat, uh, one weekend? And, uh, God and I were getting along pretty good at this point and, uh, I said, yes, because whatever was the magic in the eyes, whatever his gentle hand was with people, I wanted that, and I thought I better go where he would suggest I go. And he said, well, I can't tell you anything about it, but you're going to leave on a Thursday night, and you'll be gone for four days. So on Thursday night came, and he put me in his car, and he drove me <clears throat> down to uh, Boca Raton, and took me to a church, and about 200 people there. 
And I said, wow, I don't know what's going on. But there were 200 sets of eyes just like his. And I knew that whatever was going to happen to me was going to be something that I would desire. And I spent the next four days uh, just, you know, you talk about being shot into the fifth dimension. Believe me, that's number six. Uh, With many, many alcoholics, some non-alcoholics, but it was an experience. And on the last day, they bring, they (coughs) put some letters down. And as coincidence always has it in my life, here were all this stack of letters. And it seems that the mail had come on Saturday morning down at the center. (laughs) Somebody knew what one of the letters was. And they (coughs) rushed it up to this church where I was at, where I was housed. and It was thrown in with my letters. There it was. I was being released from prison. Somebody sure knows how to play the right music to dance to, I tell you. But timing is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And so I went back and said that I was going to be released from prison. I was called again over to the ninth floor and asked if I would come to work for the sheriff's department. Now, convicts don't walk out of jail and go to work for law enforcement. <laughs> Give me a break. It's against the law. <laughs> well, it'll be two years this November since I retired. I've got a law enforcement pension. Eat that one, taxpayers. <laughs> you know, i got to tell you this right out. It's because you shared the gift, and don't you forget it. It wasn't because I drank. I was only the target. I was your goal. You did a fantastic job for me. You've overwhelmed me with love time and time again. You've united me with a God of my understanding that surpasses everything. And the minute I recognize that I have joined in partnership with a God of my understanding, 50% of my problems are instantly removed because he knows what he's doing even when I don't. And the miracles happen over and over and over again in my life. And you've allowed me to reach out and touch others, which is sharing the gift. But I could never match the sharing that you've done with me. And whatever problems come your way, because my whole family has died since I've been in AA. A person in AA brought my mother out here as a Christmas gift, and I got to see her before she died, which was another prayer I'd asked, and it was answered. And I was able to share, and she finally understood about her insanity and realized that what its source was, that she was not truly unfit and insane. That couldn't have happened without you people. Couldn't have happened. But whatever hell, remember this, where I came from. I came from hell. Because God loved me so much, he came in there and got me, brought me out of here. God bless you.